Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Today on the show, I am very happy to have Lucas Catton. This is going to be part one of my two-part conversation, and so please tune in next week, too, to hear the next part. Lucas spent 12 years as a member of Scientology. Most of the time, he was also heavily involved in its rehab program called Narconon, where he even served as the president of their flagship facility in Oklahoma called Narconon Arrowhead. His first book, Have You Told All?, details some startling information about their operations. He then became a whistleblower, appearing on national television and testifying for civil and criminal proceedings against Narconon. In the decades since he began his departure, he has been rebuilding his life and continues to help others through work in the behavioral health field and as a coach and a consultant. He recounts that rebuilding process and what he has learned along the way in his latest book, Reconnection. You can find out more and reach him at Lucas Catton, L-U-C-A-S-C-A-T-T-O-N dot com. Here he is now. I want to welcome Lucas Catton to the show, and I am so happy that you reached out to me to be on the show because I, I know you have a very interesting story, and there are many parts to it, and there's the history, there's the, from what I've seen, and I want people to hear more about that, the, the rebuilding of a life. And then being able to set something up that helps other people become kind of safeguarded in a way and becoming uh, aware of that resource is part of the reason that I am excited to be able to have you on. I would love for you to introduce yourself and then we'll start with your story. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate your time and, and I'm happy to be here. Uh, as you said, my name is Lucas Catton and I was actually... Um, member of Scientology for about 12 years and was primarily involved in their drug rehabilitation wing, Narconon, and at one point serving as the president of Narconon Arrowhead, which was their uh, sort of flavor, uh, sorry, flagship uh, treatment facility within their network. And over time, um, found, uh, found my way out and had to deal with that process. And as you mentioned, rebuilding afterwards. Mm-hmm. Right. So I know also from a photo that you sent me that people will be able to see as part of the ad for this show. You were hobnobbing with bigwigs, which I know are two funny words to put in a sentence, but you you had a chance to meet some of the the big players in Scientology. And of course, I'm curious to hear what that was like. But going back to, I guess, pre-Narconon days and the fact that you became the president, clearly very um, a very big part of your life for, I'm sure, quite some time. What led up to you first getting involved? I was sort of a directionless kid coming out of high school. And I did well in lots of things, played sports, had good grades, that kind of thing. But we really didn't have, uh, I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't necessarily want to go to college. I didn't have really, uh, you know, any kind of purpose. And so I started filling my time with 
with partying, honestly. I tried college a couple different places and, and didn't, um, didn't participate. And one day I got pulled over and I was completely honest with the police officer. And I told him that I'd already been arrested a couple of times. And, um, and so he called my parents and said, look, I've got your son. You can either come get him in his car right now, or, um, I'm going to arrest him. So they came in, they came and got me. And, um, the next morning I woke up and I was supposed to go to work. I wasn't living with them at the time, but they took me to their house. I was supposed to go to work and, and they said, no, you're, you're not going to go to work. You're, you're going to go to this place in Oklahoma. Or we're going to call the sheriff's deputy who pulled you over last night and tell him to go ahead and arrest you. You pick. Well, at the time they had started getting involved in Scientology themselves. And one of the people that they worked with told them, you need to send him to Oklahoma. And so that's what they did. Oklahoma was uh, the, the Narcanon Center out there. Back then, it was called Narcanon Shalako, and that eventually became Arrowhead. But that was my that was my real introduction. It was through my parents and, and through a, a directionless life, and they thought that was going to be an answer to me. The problem was I was never an addict, necessarily. I just needed a purpose. You know, I needed to feel like I belonged somewhere. Okay. Um, there are a lot of people who will come to me after having been involved in 12-step program, and at first, I didn't know enough about 12-step to understand why they were coming to me to talk to someone who was a cult specialist. And as they were telling me their stories, I started seeing that while I think 12-step programs and others, uh, drug rehab programs are, are good and successful with some people, the techniques are outdated, the sort of the, the scientific piece of it really is unfounded. And also there is a whole cult-like piece, actually multi-layered, where as you probably already know, everyone gets labeled the same thing. Right. So you are all addicts or you're all alcoholics or you're all something, which is never going to be the case. Hmm. I mean, it would be like just a random person walking into my office and I said, hi, you have depressive um, issues. So come sit down and we'll start talking. I wouldn't diagnose them right away just because they walked in the door uh, and then give them a treatment for the diagnosis I decided they have just because they walked in the door. But I think also there's this idea that unless you follow everything just right and just so, that horrible things are going to happen to you. So you can start to believe that you're an addict when you are just sort of finding a way to dull some other emotions. Uh, or pass the time, uh, or wanting to connect with, as you're saying, sort of having a sense of belonging, maybe, uh, and not having enough in your life that felt good and that felt enriching. But, you know, sometimes people go, they really just are sent down the rabbit hole of then feeling like they're an addict and feeling too scared to leave the situation that they're in, or again, something horrible will happen. So that that phrase, even though I know you just, it was just one sentence, but it triggered this whole kind of explanation because I've been having to deal with that with a lot of people coming out of these 12-step programs. In any event, so your parents had just started getting involved, so they were open to this idea of Narcanon. Yeah. Here you're sent there as an alternative to getting put in jail. Yeah. Seems like that would be a nicer choice Yeah. at the time. Right. Okay. And so what happened from there? You know, what I found is I found a group of people there, the, they, the population that was there getting help or sent to be there to get help. 
who were very passionate people about things in life who were like me in that they, they may not have known what they were missing or they may not have known um, what they should be doing. And so they're either covering it up or seeking something else or numbing some pain or whatever the different things that people do in order to wind up in that situation, right. but that these were amazing, beautiful people. And I was drawn to that. I, I felt like I had now a group of people that I could interact with and that were really raw and, and honestly more real than most of the people that I'd met up until that point. Mm. And so that's, that kind of drew me back in and, and wanting to have that feeling of connection, that feeling of belonging, you know, as you mentioned as well. And, um, I'd gone back to actually work, uh, for my parents for a year to help pay off some of the debt that they spent sending me there. And then was, pulled back in. Like I, I felt the sense of wanting to go back and I wound up going to work for Mercon after that. I'd started getting involved in some Scientology courses and doing some auditing, so that spiritual counseling. And that's that's what kind of really set the path in that direction was once I decided that I was going to go all in with this group and, and start working with them and make that a part of my daily life. Okay, so how old were you when this first happened, when you were given this sort of this watershed moment, this pivotal choice of going in one direction or another? You got involved in Narcanon at what age? 20. 20. Okay. And so then it sounds like, as you're saying, you're kind of going back and forth. But then when you went in full tilt, how old were you? 22. 22. Oh, Okay. Okay, so within a fairly short amount of time, yeah. so you still felt that connection and the and the sense of belonging. These were these were your people, right? Okay, yeah. And so then, when you really devoted yourself to it, then what did that what did that mean? How did things change for you? It and this is part of probably you know that, that we'll probably get into a little bit more of is that sense of belonging that was such a, a need for me that common purpose and that connection was so that, that that's, I started to feel invigorated by that. I uh, wound up going up to Boston for a while and, and was doing drug education talks at schools. Um, and even though the information itself was faulty, the, the, the purpose for which I was there was pure and genuine to try and help other people and to, you know, motivate and inspire kids to lead, you know, happier, healthier lives to not make some of the decisions that, that I made that wound me up in that position and, and that sort of thing. And I really became really excited about what I was doing and grooming me to go to Oklahoma and develop their drug education wing in Oklahoma, knowing that Arrowhead was on its way, that they were moving from the old school Shalako to this renovated resort uh, on the lake. And, and so that whole experience was very appealing to me. Okay, well, so a renovated facility on the lake diff different from Chilaco from the from how it was from the photos I've seen from the people I've talked to who were involved at the time yes yes okay and so when you were speaking for example in some of these schools in Boston and you were saying things that would resonate for a lot of people um, and to help them not uh, get involved in something or some addiction and find some other way uh, when you're saying that there was some faulty education mixed in, in retrospect, what parts were those parts? What was faulty in some of the things that you were passing along to people like the school children you were talking to? You know, one of the biggest things that they pushed is categorizing all drugs as poisons. 
and making children sort of become anti-medicine, anti-doctors, anti-psychiatrists. That's part of the underlying thing that they would put into that. And so, you know, we would be talking about this and, and some of the explanations like, oh, if you take too much aspirin, it can kill you. Well, yeah, if you take a mountain of aspirin, it can kill you. And, and they oversimplify the messages to so that kids are going home now thinking, especially younger ones, you know, oh, I can't take medication because of whatever, you know, and, and they may have a very real condition or diagnosis or issue that requires them to do that. And here is a, what is being positioned as a, a trusted source telling them that they shouldn't ever take anything because they're all poisons. And that was probably the biggest piece of misinformation that was delivered and taken, you know, some bits of potential truth that, sure, if you take too much of anything, it, it can be a bad thing, um, and making it into twisting into their message of, you know, later on, some of their other groups, their anti-psychiatry and anti-psychology and anti-medicine and all these other things that they're against and trying to lay that in on a, on a really young, impressionable mind. And it was certainly by design. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's so fascinating about what you're saying is it's, um, on the one hand, it's reminding me of this movie that was already dated by the time I saw it. But it, if anyone hasn't seen it, it's a definite period piece called Reefer Madness. And mm -hmm. Reefer, I don't know if you've seen it, but Reefer Madness is this very sensationalized movie that was to scare people to not take drugs. And it's ridiculous, the, the claims, the things that you're going to do. <laughs> it, I mean, it's good. It's sort of like a party movie, right? You could sit around eating popcorn and kind of enjoying. It's like watching the blob, you know, just, you just have to, you just have to experience the ridiculousness of it. But what I, what I wrote down as you were talking was I wrote down gateway drug because there's this idea of things being gateway drugs to other things, but it almost seems like the education that people provide people through Narconon is a gateway drug to Scientology. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the development of that educational program all throughout the entire thing, and this was something that I had shared, um, I'd written the first book, it's called uh, Have You Told All? And it was about my experience in the time, and it details all of these things. And I, and I include in there all of the references directly from Hubbard and Scientology that are put into those drug education talks and why it's delivered. So they're giving the, the Scientological theory behind why we're telling these kids these things in, in an attempt to give them what they call source truth or source information. Um, and so it's, you know, when back then as a 22-year-old kid, feeling this purpose, not, not fully getting the magnitude of it all at that time, you know, I was like, oh, this is great. You know, these kids are these kids are loving it, but they're loving the high energy. They're loving the the general, you know, feeling of wanting them to do well in life. And they're they're missing that that hidden piece that's being installed underneath it. Right, right. And I, I clearly, on the one hand, you're a good teacher because you got people uh, enthusiastic about your message. And the people who I've talked to who have been well. In retrospect, they were very good at teaching or they were very good at recruiting. That makes it harder for them later on uh, because they realized that the things that they were providing were not necessarily for those people's benefit, but to, as the, this phrase that I use sometimes, sort of keep uh, the well-oiled machine really well-oiled. And, 
And at the same time, though, clearly you had a certain skill, which I want to be able to talk about later on in our conversation about how you teach things now sort of on the other side of the fence and using those skills. Sure. Okay. So then you had all these experiences reaching out to people. There was this sort of groundswell, as you notice, of enthusiasm. And then you could take that back to Arrowhead. Yes. And okay. And so then what happened in Arrowhead? So this new place was being built. So tell us about what was going on then. So I get there, I start establishing their education wing or unit um, in Oklahoma and preparing for the opening of, of this new facility. We moved down there, in, I think it was July of 2001 is when, is when we officially moved in, uh, the end of July, early August. And then they held a grand opening in September of 2001. And it was this big affair. They spent, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars on the event and, lots of groundwork to try and get local dignitaries and things like that to, to make it a big thing. And it was, there was a lot of effort put behind it. I mean, the, the first time that I actually saw pictures of it was at uh, an event, it's called an IAS event, the International Association of Scientologists, because that's who was giving the grant to purchase and renovate the facility. So it's like, if, if there was ever any question to begin with of the connection, <laughs> Like this is who's buying and who actually owns the property that we're all mm -hmm. now moving into. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So that that sort of happened, and and I continued on, and I started training other people to replace me, and wound up working my way up to where there was a point where the person who was chosen to be the president, um, and the president for there is more like a spokesperson, not the one who's in charge. Um, the one who's in charge was the CEO, and that was Gary Smith. Or the, the executive director. Mm -hmm. And so as they were looking for someone to fill this void, I was one of the people that was considered and went through this vetting process. And, and um, they said, all right, you're, you're going to be the person. And so by December of that year, um, I think I was tentatively named that. And by January of 2002, that's when I was like officially announced, I think. Um, and I think a, a picture that I sent to you, I think was from I believe it was from January of 2002. Mm -hmm. Okay. So of course there's a, there's a um, face that stuck out in that picture. Uh, but if you can, besides yours, uh, but. That was a different picture. But yeah, oh, that's a, oh, that was a different picture. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I did see that picture okay. from that. So that's from January, 2002, when you became the president. Um, so at some point, maybe you can talk about the kind of setting up for that other picture and what was happening sure. at the time. Was it around that same time or that was later down the road? That was about a year and a half later. Okay. Or, or right. two years later, about two years later. Okay. All right. So then there's, let's fill in the blanks between the pictures. And yes. so then you had this picture of yourself. It's a, it's a moment great of great pride, I'm sure. And what was it like also for your parents at that point? Were they still involved? They were still involved, absolutely. Um, and, and by then, I was very heavily involved. I was, um, you know, doing the doing the church services, the the auditing, counseling uh, as often as possible. They would send people out to Oklahoma uh, to provide that for staff. Um, and so I was I was very much deeply involved at that point in, in every aspect. And yeah, my parents were were definitely proud. You know, they 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 were happy to see that I now had a direction and a purpose and and was aligned with a group that at that time they thought was also doing good. You know, there was, this was, 
and it's funny because I talk about this a little bit with some people because nowadays where we are in 2020, people go, how in the heck did you get caught up in that? Like everybody knows, stay away from these people. Um, you know, but in, but in 2000, or 1998, when I first went to um, Chilaco as a, as a client to by then 2001, 2002, even there wasn't that much information online. There weren't a lot of TV shows being done. There weren't, you know, there, there wasn't the proliferation of videos on the web and outspoken people. Yes, there were some, but not to the degree that there is today, certainly not Emmy winning series and all that kind of stuff. So when we would question anything, there, there wasn't a lot of things to find out because it was easy to write off the naysayers as, oh, they're just crazy or, or they just don't understand or, or that kind of thing. Um, and so I, I want to throw that little disclaimer in there because at that time, we really weren't aware of all of the stuff going up and down the chain of all the groups and what they were doing and behind the scenes and all that stuff. Um, we still thought that we were doing something good. I want to underscore that. It's true. Not only people in Scientology were kept in the dark, but the public at that time also was kept in the dark. I, I know in, in the 90s, it's crazy to think about it now, but in the 90s, I was working at a place called the Cult Hotline and Clinic in New York. That's part of the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. They had a lot of sub-organizations. That was one of them. And I was the clinician there. And then I put together a speakers bureau where we went around people who had been involved in cults, parents, loved ones, others who had dealt with losing somebody to an organization or even to a relationship that sort of took them over and they really lost contact with them and lost any connection. And they wanted to use their experiences for you know education and prevention. And I set up hundreds of speaking engagements over the whole tri-state area in that, uh, at that time. I was not allowed to say Scientology was a cult, even if I was asked directly. So here I was, and I had to tell these people that they couldn't say a lot of things because that would be the end of our program. We would be sued, you know, into oblivion. So even though someone could even go to a talk about cults, they still wouldn't have heard that there was uh, anything wrong with Scientology. And so uh, it's very understandable that you had no idea. Thankfully, that's not the case anymore. No, <laughs> there's, you know, but there's there's still obviously some operations, but that that can be. We'll, we'll get to that point. Yes, right. No, I know that I I'm, they they track what I do. I'm sure they track what you do, but there's a lot more freedom as there should be because we have constitutionally protected rights that we should be able to exercise. So I'm now stepping off my soapbox and gonna. <laughs> You get back to your story. Okay. So then as the president, what happened with this center in Oklahoma? What did you see happening during that period of time? Really from from 2002 to 2005, I there was this really rapid growth of acceptance. There was a lot of online activity to where websites were not gone, were all over the place. Um, a lot of activity that I personally did, for example, was legislative work. And, you know, every once in a while there would be a, a Scientology celebrity who would be sent out to do some events and get some press. And I would get booked on TV shows and radio shows. And because we're a nonprofit, we could get lots of free airtime too. So we could call up, 
And we booked sometimes as many as 25 radio shows a week throughout the country, not just for myself, but for other people who would call up, would send the DJ, you know, the, the list of questions uh, through their PSA director. And we would get all this free airtime, including at one point getting on CNN and the CNN airport network, our TV public service announcements, which we would get inundated with calls. So from all around the country, especially in that in that you know three year period, things looked fantastic for in terms of Narcon, in terms of the growth. I mean they went from you know uh, a couple million dollars a year to to uh, I think twelve million dollars a year um, in that in that growth time period just for that one facility and went to two hundred and fifty clients enrolled in the facility at one time and there were over a thousand people at a time in an Arcanon center in the United States um, in that especially toward that that tail end before things started to take a dive in really about 2006 they started to hit a downturn okay all right so I'm curious also during that time do you know how many Arcanon centers there were I mean I like I like being able to have the numbers of how many people were involved do you have a sense about the number of facilities themselves? Uh, it's it, well, it's similar to the churches that they they inflate the numbers. But in terms right. of actual numbers in the United States, there were I believe nine uh, facilities in the United States, and they ranged from you know a handful of people all the way up to 250 people enrolled in, in a single facility. Uh, Arrowhead was the largest, but there's a lot of activity in Southern California. They had a group of centers in Southern California and Northern California, Michigan, Louisiana, Florida. Uh, those were the those were the real strongholds, the most stable uh, at the time facilities that were operational. Okay, okay. So before the downturn in two thousand six, because I like the foreshadowing, because <laughs> the lead into that, mm-hmm. I have two questions. One is, um, if you can take people through sort of a day in the life at Narconon, what happens when you're there? We, uh, there was another guest on the show who was talking about her experiences. I'm wondering, you know, uh, that was also from a little time before the time that you were there. So I'm curious if you can give people kind of a vision of what the treatments were like and what a day would be like. And then my other question was if you saw that it was working or not. And so what was it like there and what were the treatments like? And then did you think it was working for people? Sure. So there were, back then, a typical day, get up, have breakfast. Uh, They would do various roll calls throughout the day. Uh, They would start at a series of courses uh, in the the Narconon books, one through eight. And they would start off doing, the first course was uh, training routines, beginning TRs is what they were called. And these are straight out of Scientology material, uh, the training routines themselves and some of the texts throughout that, not just the, the names of the courses, but also the text within it. Sometimes all they would do is just replace the word Scientology and Narconon. Otherwise, it would be almost identical in, in many of these things. So you do training routines, which start from sitting there with your eyes closed across from someone to sitting there with your eyes open across from someone to a, a, an activity called bull baiting, which is you sitting there while someone else berates you uh, or tries to say things to get you to react in some way. Some of the most vile things you've probably ever heard um, to people in very fragile conditions as well, coming straight out of withdrawal or detox into 
having someone, I mean, there would be people, uh, let's say, um, people who have been abused, uh, especially like sexually abused, who are then demonstrating and pretending to and verbally assaulting them to try and get them to crack. And you would have people break down because they, they have done that. And this is somehow supposed to be therapy for them. And it was, it was really, really insane looking back on. And some of it was taken very lightly and people were just having fun with it and it was okay, but, but that wasn't for everyone, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you move on to, they did like a Hubbard study course uh, based on his study methodology. And then you moved on to um, the, what they call the sauna program. Uh, it's, the, it's the church's um, purification rundown is what they called, but in Arkansas they called it the, the new life detoxification program. Quite a name. Yeah. <laughs> And that's where people would sit in, in a sauna, about 140 degree sauna for up to five hours a day in and out, uh, taking breaks, drinking a ton of water, taking a ton of vitamins and oils and minerals. And the intended purpose was to flush their body of these supposed toxins that would store in there forever um, or for at least many, many, many years. And they would take just a tiny bit of science. You know, like you can find a study that shows um some small residue of certain chemicals, um, you know, for a little bit of extended period of time, maybe a few days or a few weeks, potentially after someone uses it. And then they would blow that out of proportion and go all drugs stored your fat for years. And that somehow became the sales story or pitch that people would buy into to come to the program is let's flush your body out. And that's the only way you can get free from these drugs. And so that was, that was a big part of the program was doing the sauna program is what they called it. And then you move through these other series of books. There's the, there's the ups and downs in life course. There was the um, changing conditions in life course, the uh, more training routines. They had something called objectives, which was a form of church auditing, a form of Scientology auditing delivered directly from one Narconon client to another. Um, and then you wound up with uh, the Way to Happiness course, is what it's called, which is a booklet written by Hubbard. And it, it's funny because some of these things on its surface level, and when I would tour people through back then as president, I, and the way I could explain it, they go, wow, yeah, that makes so much sense. It gives them these life skills, and they're able to stay away from people who are harmful to them. And But, but what it does is similar to the education side, it it is laying in other information beneath that and saying that that is truth, such as uh, in the ups and downs in life course, there's a condition called uh, potential trouble source or PTS. Mm. Oh, called. yeah. And that every accident or illness is directly the result of a PTS condition. So that people leave there thinking that the only reason they ever get sick, the only reason they ever have an accident or get hurt is because there must be some suppressive element or person in their environment and therefore they're on the lookout for what are, who are all these suppressives um you know they start naming family members as suppressive and they start naming friends and and it gets it gets really disastrous and that's you know like one small example of how these things on surface seem like they're going to be helpful and then really it's giving them it's laying in a, a bed of misinformation of um you know the hubbard's word is the truth right Right. And I'm curious, a a couple of questions that came up as you were going through these specifics, and I think it really helps for people to have that kind of vision um, into the day in life. Uh, But 
a suppressive person within Scientology is defined as what? Do they need to just be against you being involved in Scientology? Or is there something else that would make them suppressive? Well, the the initial definition they they give is uh, people who are against other people getting better. Oh, got it. So that's a catch-all, which kind of means the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So then, but then they that continues to get refined, and and toward the very end, as I was making my exit years later, uh, it was they boil it down to uh, the anti-Scientologist is a suppressive person. Okay, and then with uh, the bull baiting and people coming from a, a trauma history and breaking down, or people being in the sauna or taking high doses of niacin, et cetera, and then they would have sort of a medical or physical or physiological breakdown. What happened then? What happened for those people where this system actually was a poison in and of itself to their system? It varied greatly. I mean, they, they did have nurses on staff uh, to where they, they would go see a nurse if they needed to, but usually... They would apply some other equally uh, quack method to try and relieve them. They would say they had a term uh, or a phrase that says, what turns it on will turn it off. So if you're feeling sick in the sauna, you need to get back in the sauna. If, you're, if you get a headache during training routines, you need to go do more training routines. And so it begins this literal spin cycle for people of going, but no, I'm feeling terrible. They go, oh, that's because because you turn something on you need to you need to finish doing what you're doing so it'll turn off again um and it's and it's so insane i mean like thinking back on on that i hadn't hadn't thought about that particular piece in a while but you know what turns it on will turn off like that when somebody is getting physically violently ill sometimes from reactions to these things or having a a heavy traumatic re-experiencing that's occurring uh, from some recent event and they go no keep going keep doing this. And it's, uh, it's very, very damaging. So there is a quote that says no problem can be solved with the sort of the same method as what caused the problem. Uh, You have to switch to a different method because if it caused it, it can't also solve it. And so people are welcome to look that up to get the exact wording, but I do believe it's attributed to Einstein. So that runs counter to what Scientology is saying, but that also lets me know that their information or the tools that they had were so limited that they just had to keep reapplying the same thing. Like they only had a couple medicines in the cabinet. So they had to sort of keep giving you the same thing in the hope that it would reverse things. And uh, I, I don't think it probably did very often, or people would say that it did. So that they wouldn't be seen as having something wrong with them, that it's not working for them. Is right. that something that you found? Absolutely. There, were, there was something called an end phenomena that we call an EP for short, for every specific step or, or thing along the way, and sometimes even broken down into a particular day. And so clients would then go, oh, I'm going to tell you the EP of this course so you can say what you need to say to get out of there and get, and get on to the next thing. So that, that became part of this, the culture of the system is how do you, how do you just bide your time? You know, how do you just do what you, say what you need to say, do what you need to do to finish up and get out of here? And that was honestly a lot of it. Now, 
to your earlier question, did I, what did I see in terms of results or success and did people get well? Um, you know, I would, I would be lying if I didn't say I, I saw people or didn't see people get well. Yeah, absolutely. People got well through that process. And, and, and I think that, um, it, it is, it's a, a testament to the power of believing that if this thing is going to help me and I intend to be well, then I can use it to be well because I, I don't want to go back to what I was doing before. And that may be that may be a bit of an oversimplification of that, but I think that's really what it's chalked up to, in my opinion. And but at the same time, the statistics that they even continue to publish, which is insane. But back then, that's 70% of people who complete the Narcanon program are, you know, um, drug-free for two years after that. That that was a complete lie. That was absolutely a complete lie. Because I would get the reports. I would get the reports from the quote-unquote success department who would follow up with graduates of who's doing well, and and they would tabulate the statistics, but it was based on who they contacted. Um, I know there's, you know, self-reporting can be uh, valid in some cases and invalid in others if there was an attempt for, you know, a family member or something like that to verify whether or not someone was doing well occasionally, but it was very unscientific. And it was just, you know, Joe down in the success department, who was a former uh, client himself, whose job it was to make it look like everybody's doing great. Like that's, that's what he got praised on is, Oh, I contacted 70 people this week and, and, you know, 60 of them said they were doing great. And there you go. There's, there's their, you know, that's their promoted statistics. Wow. That's incredible. I'm, I'm wondering also, did you ever do the programs? Like, were you in the sauna for hours and hours on end? And I'm curious what that was like. It was uh, it was pretty maddening, um, to be honest with you. You know, I like sitting there in that heat and that temperature. I I, I personally have always sweated a lot, anyways, and, and so it wasn't an issue for me to do that. But what it was was it became similar to other things of you're not done until someone says you're done, and you can try and say that you're done, but um, until they see this set of characteristics in place and and things laid out again by Hubbard of you must have no reactions to this thing for a certain amount of time and you must get to a certain level of nice and you must do all these things that um that are completely arbitrary um that that part was maddening like is in general is sitting in a sauna and sweating for a little bit is it you know can be a good thing sure but not to that degree and and taking that amount of you know, vitamins and minerals, I, I would have, and people would always have uh, very severe stomach problems uh, because you not only, not only are you, are you flushing all these things in, which is a complete overload to your system, but you're also drinking calcium magnesium water um, mixture, sorry, a mixture of calcium magnesium um, and in increasing doses along the way. And the whole thing was just, uh, it was, it was not a pleasant experience. The calcium and magnesium and all of this sort of thing. This is just based on information from L. Ron Hubbard, or was there someone else involved in developing these non-scientific, scientifically sounding methods? Uh, most of it was him. He, he credited, uh, I think there was a nutritionist, Adele Davis, who had written some books maybe back in the 70s or something like that. And he had based some of his, some of his information on that. Um, you had mentioned uh, 12-step programs early on, and, and actually Bill Wilson 
um, had talked about and was using various applications of niacin and, and, and thinking that. So he may have pulled some of that information from, you know, the big book as well and, and kind of just decided that he's got to throw this all in and, and make up his own thing. One more thing before you go. I find it very interesting that when I do this kind of podcast, I get responses sometimes that make me think that sometimes I need to make things clearer. But I think it's also just a function of how we are as human beings. And let me explain. And I will certainly get to my feedback about my conversation with Lucas in a moment. I have received some interesting feedback from the previous episode that I had with Kelly Weil as she is writing a book about conspiracy theories and flat earthers, etc. I have gotten some calls and some emails about what people were sure they heard. And it's been so interesting. And it lets me know that while on the one hand, my initial response is to think, well, maybe I just need to be clearer about things in the podcast, about the positions that I actually am taking and the positions that I'm not. But I also think this is exactly why I have the podcast. People get caught up in an idea And they also will then just hear what they think you said. So I did receive a couple of calls from people who were sure that I said something about that I am against home births and that I am against mainstream doctors and that I am against people being open to alternative ideas. And also that I am as brainwashed and as indoctrinated as the people I'm talking about, although I've never used the term brainwashed, and that I need to be somebody who is taking a stand against corporate America because I'm clearly part of it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating. It's truly fascinating. I appreciate feedback. But what I do get reminded about is that people are going to be listening with a particular filter. It's a very natural form of confirmation bias. We hear what we think we heard, and we hear the things that confirm our already formed opinions. I would hope that people have a sense that the whole goal of this podcast is to be fair-minded and to promote critical thinking. But if there's a feeling that I've said something offensive, you're welcome to be in touch with me. But I actually would suggest that you listen to that episode one more time. Because sometimes when people listen to it again, they realize that what they think they heard was not said. It reminds me of the two episodes I did about a man who was raised during the time of apartheid in South Africa And what it's like to be raised with a particular way of looking at the world and looking at people. And the hate that I got, and he got a little, but mostly me, after that, 
about how I was saying things against the South African government during apartheid. I didn't recognize how corrupt the government is now in South Africa. It was very interesting because I don't think I said the word government once. And so we as a global community listen to content and are prone to hearing what wasn't said. And also sometimes we're prone to hearing what we think should have been said or what we are sure the person really meant. That's when it gets really confusing and hazy. It's at the core of most communication issues between couples and parents and children. So why would it be any different on a global scale? And again, because this is recorded, please feel free to listen again. Now, on to my first conversation with Lucas Catton. And truth be told, this one more thing before you go for Lucas is on a very similar theme about misinterpretation. I've heard way too often about people who have dealt with having an issue, or maybe not an issue at all, but the response to it is complete overkill. Who, because of, on the part of their parents, being nervous parents or seeing a certain behavior right away, they went to an extreme to curb that behavior because they thought their child or their loved one was going down some sort of slippery slope. And what they wanted to be able to do was take care of it right away. So they just sent them to a place that they thought was going to take care of it. And adults sometimes also dive in to a place that they think is going to take care of their problem. The problem is that sometimes that's not the problem. There are plenty of therapies and there are plenty of treatment centers that are not cheap. And they also cost quite a lot in every way. And especially when you're misdiagnosed, and especially when you then go into a series of treatments for things that are probably not at the core of the issue that you have, if you have an issue at all. When I was student teaching many years ago in college, and I was studying to become an educator in the special education program, I remember being in a classroom for kids, a third grade class, Kids had a variety of different physical challenges, some intellectual challenges, etc. And that was before I moved on into other classrooms where the children had more severe developmental and emotional and sometimes degenerative issues that kept them from being able to be capable or feel capable in a mainstream school system. In one of the classrooms, I remember a girl who was inordinately bright. She, at the age of seven, had a sophisticated sense of humor, and could create solutions to problems, both hers and her friends, and had quite a memory. But the marks that she got on the things that she produced were very low, and they had fallen greatly also from the year before. So she was getting a series of after-school special programs that were paid for by the school district, so she didn't have time after school to play with her friends because she was in one specialty group or meeting with some specialist after another. And she was told already at that point in the year that she was not going to be able to move along with her peers to the next grade, which she was very upset about. And also being told and having her family be told that she needed great remedial help was also very hard for them. But there was something off about this diagnosis of her 
because outside the classroom, she showed every capability. She was able to achieve so much and remember so much and figure out so many things. But as soon as she was back in the classroom, she was a different person. She couldn't follow basic calculations that were written on the board, and she couldn't read along with things that were put on the, well, now smart board, but chalkboard at the time. And I watched her closely, and one day it hit me that maybe part of the problem was that her last name started with W, and the seating was alphabetical, so she was way back in the back of the room. And the class was a very large class with over 30 children, which already is a problem. Not a perfect environment for many learners. Lots of sensory overload for many. Lots of opportunities to lose focus and to not have personal attention. And I also saw that she wore thick glasses that she took off to play outside. She didn't seem to need them. But in the classroom, she was often cleaning them because she said they were dirty. Her glasses were kind of too small and tight on her. She had had them already for about three years, the same glasses since kindergarten. I brought in a cloth that she could use for her glasses as opposed to wiping them on her shirt, which usually had still parts of her lunch on it. And when I cleaned her glasses and saw that they were perfectly clear, she would put them back on and she would say they were still smudgy and dirty and she couldn't see. And I realized because she was in the back row of a long classroom with a teacher who wrote everything on the board, she couldn't see. She thought everyone else could see the things the way she saw them, meaning really not at all, and she didn't know why they understood the things that she didn't understand and could do the things she couldn't do. And it started to affect her self-esteem. So after one day of class, the main teacher came up to me and said, can you please walk her to a reading specialist because she can't follow along on the chalkboard? And I said, I hope you don't mind if you think this is rude, but I don't think she needs a reading specialist. I think she needs an eye doctor. And I also think that this classroom shouldn't be based upon alphabetical order in terms of seating. It should be based upon who needs to be closer to the board. And if people are also dealing with getting easily distracted, they should be in the front row so they don't have rows and rows of kids doing whatever kids do in a class to distract them. Everything needed to kind of be changed around. And so, while of course there's nothing wrong with being labeled with special needs, there's only something wrong with it if you don't have special needs. And all of the people who have attention deficit disorder or attention deficit with hyperactivity disorder also, where that is an issue, are instead called troublemakers sometimes, called lazy, berated for not being able to focus, are called stupid and often are sent to the principal's office as opposed to having accommodations being brought into the school system and applied for them. So many people are mislabeled. So many people get diagnoses that don't belong to them. And so can you imagine also going back to Lucas's story? If all the people in the world who had ever tried alcohol or who had had a drink and then were upset about it or got drunk and then decided not to do it again, or who smoked pot or who had tried different things because they were at a party or their friends had offered it to them. And sometimes it was because it helped them with their anxiety at the time or it helped them deal with some of their depression at the time. But then they really kind of got past that need. Can you imagine if they were then called addicts and then had a life 
that was dictated for them and set in motion down this path of the life of an addict. Then they would have needed to join a community of people who either also called themselves addicts or were treated as addicts. And they might have to continue getting that treatment or staying connected to those communities so that they didn't live the life of addiction because they were often told, as people are often told, that when they go to programs for addiction, they can't trust themselves, so they need to stay dependent on this organization or this group. It would be like if you broke your leg while you were in high school, let's say, and you were brought by an adult to the doctor or to a doctor in an emergency room, and in either situation, the doctor didn't ask to see your leg to make sure it was broken. They just said, hmm, okay, so fine, your leg is broken. That's a bad thing. Are you someone who often causes yourself self-harm? Do you have a history of this? If the doctor has ever given you medication before for a painkiller, have you taken more than one at a time? Well, then I'm not going to give you anything for your pain because you might be an addict. You might abuse painkillers. And so I suggest you go to a support group for people who are addicts and you go to a residential treatment center who can address why it is that you injure yourself and that maybe the reason you broke your leg is on purpose so you could get more painkillers. So no looking at your leg, no x-rays, no resetting of a bone, no cast, no conferring with any previous doctors to see if you have a history of abuse, no conversation with you about your history, about who you really are, no compassion, no opportunity to have it be clean and normal. You are being ignored because there is an agenda. You, if anything, are not being seen as someone in pain who needs help, but someone who is constitutionally and psychologically damaged. And this is what happens so often with people who get involved in treatment centers that have their own leanings, their own way of handling things where they get lots of money and they make lots of money and they get lots of traction and they do good PR and they load people up with additional diagnoses and take them on this never-ending cycle of neediness for that group. There's no heart and no looking into the person's heart as far as I see it. And going back to the beginning of this before you go segment, when you're looking at a person but not seeing the person, you're seeing what you want to see, you're seeing what you think you're supposed to see, but you're not really seeing. And it's important when listening to this podcast that sometimes you're going to hear what I say and sometimes you're going to hear what you think I said. But it's true, actually, that open-mindedness and also some humility, like in the case of a doctor who needs to sometimes be wrong in these situations, would really solve the problem. Because if a person goes to a doctor, and in that room, the doctor says, I'm so sorry that happened. You must be in a lot of pain. Let's take care of that right away. Let me get a good look. Get an x-ray and help get you on the road of healing. And then before I prescribe a medication for you, 
Let's talk about some of your medication histories to see how your body responded to different medications so that we make good choices for you all along the way. Wouldn't that be nice? Sometimes it happens. It should always happen in your life. Make sure it does. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.